Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, yeah, we're in the middle of the summer specials and thank you also for the many emails I got in spite of me saying, let's have an email break. You're too good. Uh, some brilliant emails reflecting on the summer special from last week uh, where we plucked from the great library of bonus podcasts in Patreon, one from the Troublemaker series on Enoch Powell. And it really got me thinking some of the emails. Uh, there was a brilliant one pointing out that a lot of the Troublemakers can't stay in one party. Enoch Powell being a classic example. He left um, the Tories, of course, in February 1974 and joined the Ulster Unionists, who he stood for in the October 1974 election, never returned to the Tories. And the emailer brilliantly pointed out that Nigel Farage is another example. He's in the series of troublemakers on Patreon. Of course, was once a member of the Tory party, then became leader of UKIP, resigned as leader of uh, UKIP after the Brexit referendum, couldn't face the consequences, then formed the Brexit party. And uh, on it goes. Uh, th that doesn't apply, funnily enough, so much to those troublemakers on the left in the series. Tony Benn remained in the Labour Party, he said, with the rise of New Labour. Uh, that, of course, is not the Labour Party. I'm Labour. They're not. Um, but, of course, officially, they were all in the same party, and Tony Penn never contemplated leaving. Um, Robin Cooks in the series, of course, never would have crossed his mind to leave a political party. So it doesn't always apply, but... Um, Quite a few found the boundaries of party politics too rigid. Anyway, uh, thank you for all those emails uh, and, and, and Twitter as well. A lot of Twitter stuff on the Enoch Powell one. So if you subscribe to Patreon, you'll get the whole series. Uh, this week, if it's okay with you, we'd, I'm going to move on to um, general elections in the Patreon vault uh, so-called. Uh, there are many reflections on what I describe as cinematic general elections, uh, elections which are mysterious and sad and exciting and uh, unresolved in some respects. And what is it interesting about this summer is the degree to which, on both sides actually, the Tory side and the Labour side, there is quite a lot of reflection going on, a recognition, I think, on the Tory side that Sunak is a figure of the right. I think we in this podcast have established that from the beginning. But because of the juxtaposition with trusts, he was regarded by many as a kind of centrist. I think it's now he's being rooted very much on the right. And I would call it the bewildered right. You know, the attempts at populism going on uh, with the uh, boat people and all the other stuff. And on the Labour side, the degree to which caution is uh, driving the Starmer strategy to the point where it can itself become risky and problematic. And of course, part of the cause for the caution is the 1992 general election, which many assumed Labour would win, and it didn't. And I kind of thought it would be interesting, given the focus on caution and Labour, and the degree to which all leaders are burdened by elections of the past, even though 
every election is distinct and different. And it happens much more, I think, you know, to Labour leaders. With Cameron, I can't remember people saying, oh, it's, it's more like going to be 83 or it's going to be more like this or more like that election. But with Labour, oh, my God, it's going to be 92. And, oh, dare we hope it can be 97. No, no, no. It will be 2024 and it will be very different. But it is this 92 election, a burden on the back of the Labour leadership. So I thought for a summer bonus, I would pluck out from the vault the Patreon podcast on the 1992 general election. Uh, here it is, and then I'll pop back at the end. The 1992 general election was one of the strangest and most consequential of modern times. It was strange because some of the images are quite hard to explain, even now from a distance. The campaign itself uh, was contested during a very cold early spring. It was held on April the 9th, 1992, and the days that preceded it were icy and dark and cold, not a sunny early spring at all. And the images from it appear to be almost from a different age. John Major on his soapbox with a tannoy addressing people in a town centre. Uh, Neil Kinnock at a big rally, the famous Sheffield rally, also seems sort of oddly dated now. It acquired a significance it didn't deserve in the light of the result that was a defeat. And it was consequential for all kinds of reasons. It was the fourth Conservative election victory, all with majorities, and confirming really that the Conservatives were England, at least, not then Scotland and Wales, uh, of course not Northern Ireland, but England's governing party of choice. Uh, the Conservatives won that fourth election in the depths of economic gloom, but England still turned to the governing party who, that had presided over that gloom. It didn't blame them. There was a phrase used during that election, stick with nurse for fear of something worse, with the clear implication, really, that England at least would never turn to Labour because if the economy was booming, it would reward the Conservative governing party. And if it was on the edge of recession, it would turn to the Conservatives for fear of something worse. There's no doubt that the 1992 result came to shape and define new Labour, and the assumptions that the very cautious Blair-Brown partnership carried into the 1997 election and into government. It triggered also almost fatal divisions within the victorious Conservative Party. Europe became the main theme in the years that followed that 1992 election, and you can trace from that period a route map towards the Brexit referendum in 2016. So it was both 
beguiling in a dark way. It wasn't a buoyant, vibrant general election, but it was, as all my elections uh, I'm choosing to reflect on are, it had a kind of dark cinematic quality and was also hugely significant. For Neil Kinnock, of course, it was a personal tragedy. Uh, Here was someone who had given up much of his 40s to lead an unruly Labour Party, nine years at the helm, who dared to hope in 1992 he would be rewarded for the hell of leadership uh, by becoming Prime Minister. And to highlight his agony, which will be one of the themes of my reflections further on as well, I would just give this one example to set the scene. Many assumed Labour would win in 1992. Uh, They were ahead in the polls, although that lead was narrowing significantly by April the 9th, the day of polling day. Uh, And even if it was a hung parliament, Neil Kinnock would become Prime Minister. And this happened on the nerve-shredding evening of that general election, nerve-shredding for lots of people, but for the leaders, almost impossibly so. The BBC had conducted its famous exit poll and had decided by early evening uh, that it was going to be a hung parliament. Now, this is top-secret stuff, only a few people know, uh, and uh, it's revealed to the rest of us, of course, at 10 o'clock. Uh, when polls close. But one of those who had got an inkling uh, of this uh, was the legendary uh, political reporter for the BBC, Vincent Hanna. He was the by-election star. He used to just do by-elections for Newsnight and turn them into an astonishing circus. He was also pretty close to Neil Kinnock, and he could not resist telling Neil Kinnock that the exit poll was going to predict a hung parliament, and that meant he, Neil Kinnock, would be prime minister. And that's how Neil Kinnock spent the rest of the evening. He had been by then conditioned to be pessimistic, because so much had gone wrong, really, in his nine years. But this gave him cause for hope that he would be rewarded with the premiership within a few hours, in the middle of the night, perhaps. Instead, we all know what happened. That exit poll was famously wrong, triggering all kinds of internal reviews uh, in the BBC. Uh, And the indication of when it was wrong was the famous result fairly early on in the night from Basildon where there was a swing to the Conservatives. And from that moment on, Neil Kinnock's hopes were dashed. And he began to realise in the hell of the darkness of the middle of the night that it was over for him. And yet, before then, there had been big, big by-election wins. This is between 1987 and 1992 huge by-election wins, bigger than Labour have uh, had in recent years when they've again been in opposition, and opinion polls sometimes showing uh, double-figure Labour leads. 
So one of the things we need to explore together is what went wrong for Labour, but also what went right for the Conservatives. In a way, the most important contextual factor uh, to explain 1992 is to look briefly at 1987. Uh, This was an election between Margaret Thatcher and Neil Kinnock, and Thatcher won another landslide. Uh, an astonishing electoral achievement, her third election victory, her second successive three-figure landslide. And what that meant, although it wasn't really clear to anyone at the time, was, at least in my view, it was going to be almost impossible for Labour to turn it around at the next general election. Uh, To turn around three-figure landslide majorities is one hell of a mountainous challenge. And one of the things that I think explains Neil Kinnock's failure to succeed in 1992 is simply the scale of the mountain was too big for anyone. He inherited a huge landslide defeat for Labour in 1983, wasn't able to turn it round very much by 1987 because of all kinds of things. The miners' strike... Uh, Labour still in considerable degrees of turmoil, even though the 87 campaign for Labour was unrecognisable in terms of projection and presentation compared with the shambolic 83 campaign. Uh, Kinnock had appointed Mandelson, Peter Mandelson, to be in charge of uh, presentation and projection, which Mandelson did with a relentless energy and at times, brilliance. Indeed, if you want to look at Peter Mandelson's influence on Labour, it wasn't really during the new Labour period. He was extremely close to Tony Blair and then famously Gordon Brown when he brought him back into the cabinet. But his big, direct, overt influence, where you could measure things being down to him, was uh, under Neil Kinnock in the 1980s. And they had a slick campaign. Uh, There was one famous television uh, party broadcast by Hugh Hudson, the director of Chariots of Fire, which was basically called Kinnock, the broadcast. And it was so successful uh, that Peter Mandelson said, OK, we'll repeat it, which they did a couple of nights later. Uh, So even uh, and Mandelson, after the 87 campaign, reflected, we won the campaign but lost the election. And boy, did they lose it by, uh, again, a three-figure majority. So that was the mountain Labour had to climb, and that was the protective shield that Margaret Thatcher had as she declared that she had every intention to go on and on, and once famously said that she hadn't met her successor. But the reason why... Labour and Neil Kinnock dared at times to have hope in the always a dangerous emotion in politics uh, in the run up to the 1992 election uh, were several. First of all, this third term of uh, the Conservative government was very stormy. We could go through a lot of it, but of course, I just want to reflect briefly on the most famous example of the storms, uh, Margaret Thatcher's determination to introduce the poll tax. 
Now, Thatcher had been a good judge uh, of what was possible in terms of her radical instincts up until around 1987. At times, she was surprisingly cautious, given her radical right-wing instincts, um, because she knew, knew she didn't have the space to make her moves. And then when space opened up, boy, did she make her moves. The poll tax was her great misjudgment, and we haven't got time now to go into too much detail, but I hope to on a subsequent podcast uh, on this Patreon version of rock and roll politics, because um, it is fascinating. She was not doing this willfully uh, as a sort of, I know people will hate it, but I'm determined to do it. She worked on the assumption that the poll tax, a replacement for the property rate system for raising money for local government, would be popular. And famously, it turned out to be so unpopular that you even had protests and demonstrations in rock-solid Tory areas of Kent. You had Tory councillors in revolt. And it is arguable that part of the reason for the stormy traumas of the Tory party in years to come had some of its origins, not only in Europe, the issue of Europe, but also in the trauma of the poll tax. And uh, she was determined to see it through. Uh, She was warned by the then Environment Secretary, Chris Patton, that the poll tax bills were going to be astronomical. And the principle was that everyone, whatever their income, should pay the same, a flat rate tax. Um, And it was a glory for Labour. At the height of the poll tax furore, Labour were winning dream by-elections and were often ahead in the polls by more than, well, 20, 20%, not, not 20%, 10, 15% at times during that period. And when a rhythm and pattern is set in place, it's often possible for a opposition party to make that momentum feed on itself. Uh, a new Labour... 94 to 97, Tony Blair began with a huge poll lead and it fed on itself. And there was an assumption amongst quite a lot of the commentariat, a lot of them hostile to Neil Kinnock and Labour, that this would happen in the run-up to 1992. This was also the fear of Tory MPs, who, of course, removed Margaret Thatcher in 1990 and incidentally removed them partly because of an astonishing by-election result in Eastbourne in the early autumn of 1990. Eastbourne had been the seat of Ian Gow, the close friend of Margaret Thatcher, who was, in the most appalling way, uh, blown up by the IRA when he started his car. And it was uh, so tragic on so many levels, including for Margaret Thatcher, The assumption was that in the subsequent by-elections, on that basis alone, the Conservatives would walk it. In fact, it was a dramatic gain for the Liberals, the Liberal Democrats, as they were by then. And that, the poll tax, and other factors to do with Europe, meant famously that the Conservatives removed Thatcher and replaced her with John Major. 
In retrospect, this was the other factor, along with, I think, the scale of the mountain, the size of that Conservative majority, uh, that doomed Labour. John Major was a different kind of leader to Margaret Thatcher in so many ways, uh, that there was a sense amongst part of the electorate that there had been a change of government, and that uh, the kind of cathartic moment was the fall of Thatcher, not some general election to come. Uh, The flaws of this third term had been addressed by her replacement. And for a time, uh, Major, in a way that has been overlooked, was a kind of, to use an overused word, he was a modernising Tory, much more so than David Cameron, who pretended to be, and George Osborne, who pursued uh, turbocharged Thatcherite economic policies. He made Chris Patton the Conservative chairman, in the build-up to 92, and it felt for a time as if the Conservative Party was moving on from uh, the sort of pure, brutal version of Thatcherism to something with echoes of Christian democracy in Germany, say. A big, big leap. Now, it didn't turn out like that, as we all know, but there was that sense in the build-up to 1992. Meanwhile, Neil Kinnock had done virtually all he could uh, to change Labour. After the 87 uh, defeat, he announced a policy review uh, where not only did he have to change the party, but in some cases change his own approaches. Most famously, his support for unilateral nuclear disarmament, which was dumped as part of that policy review. Um, And by 1992 the election of 1992, uh, Neil Kinnock had not only changed policies, um, he had created a shadow cabinet on the edge of that 92 election who would have been absolutely ready for the challenges of government. Uh, In Neil Kinnock's final shadow cabinet, there was John Smith, the shadow chancellor, Tony Blair was in there, Gordon Brown was in there, Robin Cook was going to be there as he was shadow health secretary. They would have all transferred into government, although none of them had had any experience, although Margaret Beckett was a important person. She was shadow chief secretary working very closely with John Smith. They had, both of them, had experience of government in the 1970s. Uh, John Smith was in the cabinet as that Labour government fell in 79. Um, It was uh, an impressive shadow cabinet and an enormous tribute to Neil Kinnock uh, that he was able to form such a team uh, at the end of a nine-year period of endless storms. Meanwhile, Although there was a sense of a change of government under this John Major, Chris Patton axis, there were many problems for that Conservative government, not least the economy, uh, which was, again, sinking towards a deep recession. And one of the factors was a very tangible one, not least for natural Conservative voters. Uh, The phrase of the time was negative equity. People had bought houses uh, at then high prices, 
but with relatively easy interest rates. And that uh, became uh, virtually unsustainable as interest rates soared and house prices fell. Now, that's the kind of nightmare for governments which can lead to catastrophic defeats, not least when a governing party has been in power for four terms. So that was the kind of sense as we moved towards the 1992 election. Very interestingly and revealingly, there was feverish speculation that John Major was going to call the election in the autumn of uh, 1991. Uh, And he didn't, uh, which again is a tribute to Kinnock and the Labour Party. He would have done if he was confident he was going to win. So as late as the autumn of 1991, he feared he wouldn't win and that uh, uh, Kinnock would indeed become Prime Minister. Uh, uh, And anyone who worked at the BBC at that period will remember this very well because what happened was this. Um, It was during the Conservative Party conference and Eleanor Goodman, the then, uh, this is autumn of of, uh, ninety one. Uh, Eleanor Goodman, then political editor of Channel 4 News, got a briefing uh, that the um, election would not happen that autumn. And she told the Channel 4 News this at 7 o'clock that evening, one day during the Tory conference, I think it was in Brighton. Um, And the BBC had its usual army of political correspondents, managers all over the place, producers. No one watched that bulletin from the BBC, and no one reported that this was, uh, the autumn election was now off um, in the main bulletins that evening. Caused a huge inquest. Um, The answer, by the way, in parenthesis as to why that happened is if overstaffing does not lead to more storings being secured, it leads to less because no one has a direct sense of responsibility for anything. Anyway, that's very much in parenthesis. Um, But So he didn't call it because he didn't think he would win. So what happened by 1992 to bring about that dramatic Tory win? One of the agonies for Labour in opposition is tax and spend. And as ever, uh, they got themselves into contortions, this time of a slightly different sort to sort of making cock-ups during the campaign about precisely what they would do over tax and spend. Um, there was absolute uh, strict discipline imposed by John Smith and Margaret Beckett about spending pledges. And then, famously, in the build-up to 1992, John Smith announced his alternative budget. Now, the reason they did that was twofold, Uh, partly symbolism. They wanted to be seen almost as the government, hence alternative budget. And during that campaign, uh, they didn't use shadow at any point. They said, here's Robin Cook, Labour's health secretary. And at the announcement of the alternative budget, here's Labour's Chancellor John Smith. And the budget had been very carefully uh, worked on uh, with uh, various things in mind. 
They wanted, ironically, given what happened next, uh, to protect Labour from any claims that they had hidden tax plans, um, which would be uh, erupting around voters once they had been safely elected. They wanted to show also um, how they were going to tax fairly and actually show that most voters would be better off under Labour's plans. So there all the journalists were at a grand building, the Institute of Civil Engineers in Westminster. It felt quite theatrical. Um, And uh, John Smith gave all the details of Labour's plans. There were budget documents to show that they were ready for government. And in effect, the top line was everyone earning less than 22000 a year would either be better off or pay the same under Labour. And that was most voters. Um, but that was not how it was reported. Uh, the Conservatives leapt on this alternative budget and uh, famously started talking about tax bombshell, Labour's tax bombshell, Labour's double whammy of higher taxes and all sorts of things. Um, And it was extremely effective, the Tory response. It wasn't based on the figures provided by John Smith, but it worked. And this was an example of an election where the Conservative Party danced effectively with its powerful conservating supporting newspapers this was the sun at its peak uh the daily mail is still of course powerful and was then and they went with labor's tax bombshell um and there's no doubt it had an impact uh the other factor is this and this i think has been underplayed but is extremely important labor was going to raise money from that alternative budget and those over 22,000 a year earning more than 22,000 a year were going to pay for it now that had two things as some people pointed out at the time a lot of people in the media were in that bracket and thought oh my god we're going to lose money and that helped certainly the Tory newspaper editors get even more angry but there was another thing that alternative budget was largely going to fund uh, higher pension increases, some ben- other benefit increases. Um, and that, in effect, was Labour's kind of big idea. And so when Neil Kinnock was asked in interviews, as he often was, and Keir Starmer should take note of this, so what really is Labour's big idea in this 92 election campaign? He had to say, look, higher pay for pensioners is a very big idea. Um, But it didn't really take off. There was less sense of what the vision would be, given that it was, oh yeah, a bit more money for pensioners, a bit more here and there. Now, maybe noble objectives and policies. Um, But here is a twist. The relationship between Neil Kinnock and John Smith was not good. Uh, And it was sort of reported at the time, some of the tensions, but I think they were deeper. And they took several different forms. Uh, In opinion polls, John Smith's personal ratings were higher than Neil Kinnock's. 
uh, and that torments any leader when you have someone in your team getting much higher personal ratings. And that also gave John Smith a confidence, which he already possessed. He was a very self-confident politician, to be assertive. And so here's one example. Neil Kinnock, remember, who had been leader for a long, long time by then, uh, wanted one of Labour's big ideas in 1992, to have an earmarked tax to pay for improvements in the NHS. Something Gordon Brown did much later on in his 2002 budget, a budget that proved very popular. And Kinnock wanted to make great play of a tax directly to pay for the NHS so people could see where their money was going and could hold that money to account or the spenders of that money to account. And they could elevate the NHS to a higher level with this policy. John Smith vetoed it uh, and had the authority to do so. So Labour's big ideas in that election revolved around that alternative budget, which had become, within minutes, greatly distorted. I think the Conservatives held a news conference at their headquarters the same day of the alternative budget, with the then-Chancellor Norman Lamont pumping out figures of what this is going to cost the average voter. Uh, So tax and spend was an issue that tormented Labour yet again, in spite of all the efforts, all the energy to impose discipline in this precise area. Uh, There was another factor, which is this, that being leader of the opposition for nine years is far, far too long. When you think about it, a leader of the opposition cannot be judged by policy implementation because he or she has no power to implement policies. So all voters see is a leader uttering words, um, managing his or her party. And there had been a hell of a lot of that with Neil Kinnock. But as Neil Kinnock himself has reflected since, what voters saw was a leader trying to sort out his party, but they didn't see a potential prime minister. That too, I think, was a factor with a clear lesson. Any leader of the opposition in the modern era with the intensity of scrutiny uh, has only one shot. Uh, You cannot realistically be a leader of the opposition for eight years. In other words, those who left after an election defeat, William Hague, Ed Miliband and so on, were right to do so rather than battle it out for another four or five years just being seen speaking and not doing in terms of policy implementation. And the Tories, as I've already said, appeared fresh. There was Michael Heseltine back in, having been the foe of Margaret Thatcher. Chris Patton was no ally of Margaret Thatcher's, right at the top of the party. Douglas Hurd, a relative moderate, and so on. They looked different, and to some extent were different. And all these factors led to the surprise result, Uh, a conservative victory in which, remarkably, the Conservatives received the largest number of votes at a UK general election in British history. Um, It was an astonishing achievement for Major and Patton, 
the they did so in a context of a recession unemployment around two and a half million as the election moved into view um, and yet they pulled off this victory there was a another twist of course which is um, although uh, the number of votes secured were was remarkable and bigger than anything Margaret Thatcher ever achieved the majority was tiny because the votes were spread more thinly around the country and Major got a majority of just 21. And in that sense, it was a great achievement for Neil Kinnock to wipe out a landslide majority and leave the Tories, in effect, struggling to govern with a tiny majority of 21. Uh, But they did it, and I think those were the factors that explain it. The campaign itself, I suspect, made little difference. At times, uh, and it's forgotten now because of the result, the result changes the way you see campaigns. At times, the Tory campaign appeared to be amateurish and in disarray. John Major out there on his soapbox addressing voters in Luton and other towns came to be seen as a triumph of communication after he had won. At the time, and if you look on YouTube, it still seems that to me, uh, it was really amateurish. Uh, And, you know, Major with some croaky megaphone uh, speaking to voters, uh, if he had lost, I think people would have concluded that this had been a disastrous campaign. And at times, the then head of communications at Conservative Central Office, Sean Woodward, who went on to become a Labour MP, I know was in despair. But after the result, Sean went off lecturing around the world, explaining how to win elections. Um, So the campaign for the Tories was not that brilliant, although they were ruthless in this area of tax and spend. Uh, Labour, although oddly, while the result was much better, Uh, than 87, the campaign did not have that vivacity and freshness that the 87 one did. Unsurprisingly, uh, in 87, that was Neil Kinnock's first campaign as Labour leader. He was still full of energy, although fairly drained by some of the traumas of leadership by then. But by 92, nine years of it, uh, he was tired. Uh, He was also uh, under pressure to be so disciplined. I remember going to an event at the BBC's, part of the BBC's building in Four Millbank, uh, downstairs in the restaurant. It was a kind of labour arts event, arts for labour. And all the kind of celebrities were there. And at one point, a band started playing and Neil was there with Glennis. And I could see him instinctively starting to move to the rhythm of the music and almost want to get up and dance because he is exuberant. And suddenly he stopped himself and froze into a statue because he knew that the newspapers would see this as frivolous or feared they would. Um, And that was the kind of campaign it was, fearful, nervy. And uh, so, you know, a lot has been made of the Sheffield rally uh, when Neil Kinnock, Labour had had very good polls that day and it looked as if they might well win. Uh, and he addressed the rally and he said, you know, like it was a sort of rock 
event, are you all right? You know, and all this kind of thing. Um, and many people have said, oh, he got, he lost himself. For those seconds, he lost that self-discipline and lost the election. No rally has that kind of impact. Um, and I don't think it did. Uh, and indeed, at the time, isn't it interesting how events seem different depending on what followed them? Uh, John Cole, the then BBC's political editor who went to that rally, compared it to some of Kennedy's rallies in the 60s. Um, and he meant that in a positive way. So it wasn't the Sheffield rally that brought about the election result. It was the other factors we've explored. Um, and so there we were on April the 9th, many expecting a hung parliament or possibly a small Labour majority, adjusting again to a Conservative victory. Uh, John Major, who never had the sort of strident self-confidence of Margaret Thatcher, was aware uh, that this was a small majority and was pushing the natural laws of politics. He said to Chris Patton, who incidentally lost his seat uh, in Bath uh, to the Liberals, the Liberal Democrats, uh, we are we are pushing the edge of the envelope a little too far, or some weird imagery, uh, to come to terms with yet another election victory. And that small majority was going to go and prove to be highly, highly significant. Uh, and by the way, in a, in a way, you know, Ted Heath, after the 1970 election, uh, his chancellor, Ian McLeod, died suddenly, very early on after that election. And I don't think Heath ever recovered from that. Major never really recovered from losing Chris Patton who he liked, trusted, admired, shared a similar political outlook, um, and he felt a bit lost without Patton. So although it was a triumph for Major, the day after, the Friday, you could see seeds of doubt being sown in his quite insecure mind um, at the height of his power and authority and triumph. For Labour... Neil Kinnock resigned and was desperately low for quite some time. No leader of the opposition who lo loses an election really ever gets over it. And the immediate aftermath was terrible for him. Um, and he, he resigned. And at the post-mortem uh, meeting of Labour's governing National Executive Committee, um, uh, Philip Gould, the focus group guru um, reported that the main reason why Labour lost the election was that voters didn't trust it with the economy, didn't trust it to spend money or raise taxes. Uh, and this, the, the new shadow chancellor, Gordon Brown, took note of. So did Tony Blair, both of whom had joined the national executive. Uh, committee um, as the bright people on Labour's front bench. And from that moment on, as the new Shadow Chancellor, initially under John Smith, who won the leadership contest, uh, by the way, the, the opponent of John Smith in the leadership contest in 1992 was Brian Gould, who I think Neil Kinnock would have preferred 
I've no idea whether Neil Kinnock voted for Brian Gould. He's never said, but I wouldn't be at all surprised. Um, but Brian Gould, who was a curious mix, Keynesian, a very interesting reformer of public services, a Eurosceptic. Um, he soon left and went back to New Zealand, where he was from originally. John Smith made Gordon Brown a shadow chancellor. And Gordon Brown, in 1992 and for the next five years, faced the most appalling conundrum. Public services were creaking and were to creak even more in the coming five years. And part of the solution was obviously more investment. Um, but at the same time, um, Labour weren't trusted to spend money. And Brown agonised over how to square this circle uh, in all kinds of different ways. Um, but at first, he was absolutely clear. No one in the shadow cabinet could utter a word which implied a spending increase. And in being utterly uh, rigid in that instruction, he alienated quite a lot of MPs, quite a lot of the shadow cabinet. So that when, in 1994, due to the sudden tragic death of John Smith, a vacancy arose, he turned round and found that whereas Tony Blair as Shadow Home Secretary were kind of uttering phrases which had a potency uh, across the political spectrum, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, a soundbite actually that Gordon Brown thought of and gave to Tony Blair. Brown, the rigid disciplinarian, I remember uh, David Blunkett, then uh, Shadow Education Secretary, saying to me, I think Gordon Brown's a monetarist. He was far from a monetarist. He was just determined to address the findings of the 1992 election. And so when New Labour took shape, it was with that 1992 election in mind. Not a penny to be spent that couldn't be explained, and the spending would be extremely cautious and incremental. And famously, Labour went into the 97 election, pledged to stick to the Conservative spending plans for the first two years and not to put up income tax throughout the whole of the next parliament. Those absolutely defining policies arose from the 1992 election. Uh, for the Conservatives, uh, it's the kind of apparent triumph, this eternal one-party state turned into five years of hell. And for Major, the key event, famously, of his leadership was not in a way the election victory about Britain falling out of the exchange rate mechanism a few months later in September 1992. Uh, from that moment on, and certainly after the referendum in Denmark, which rejected the Maastricht Treaty, just as the legislation to back the Maastricht Treaty was coming into the House of Commons, John Major's life was hellish. And um, the majority of 21 slipped and slipped and slipped. And in a way, as he had, in a kind of Shakespearean way, foreseen on the Friday after his election victory, he was leading towards a calamitous defeat 
1997. Many other things arose from the 1992 election. The role of the media. Uh, Neil Kinnock was subjected to a vicious press that unquestionably paid a part in Labour's defeat. Some of the um, analysis suggests it wasn't the case, um, that most Sun readers still voted Labour, etc. But you just have to be, you don't have to be a political expert, you have to be a normal human being to accept that if uh, voters read day after day that the alternative uh, prime minister is a Welsh windbag, that he can't be trusted, that he's a spendthrift, that he's a extreme left-winger, that he's not prime ministerial, he's not very bright. This was the constant onslaught that Kinnock faced. And, of course, famously, on Election Day, the Sun produced that front page, will the last person to leave Britain turn out the lights with a photo of Kinnock with a light bulb. This did have an impact. And even if that is contended, what cannot be uh, contended is the impact it had on Neil Kinnock's self-confidence. He was, when he was first elected in 1983, um self-confident and exuberant and funny and one of the great orators of British politics. Uh, But the relentless attacks uh, made him change his personality as a public figure. There were no signs of exuberance except in that Sheffield rally when it was regarded as a gaffe. Um, He changed his hair, he brushed his hair back uh, and looked more like a kind of technocratic bank manager. Um, he gave dense speeches about economic policy in an attempt to convince people that he could be trusted to run the economy. Um, but the vivacity, the great zest for life, the wit, all had gone uh, because his self-confidence had been dashed by the way he was portrayed in the media. He had, before he became Labour leader, been a bit of a media darling, Um, one of the few people to appear on Michael Parkinson's chat show. He was only shadow education secretary, but he was seen as such a star. He got a slot on Michael Parkinson, you know, with Richard Burton and Marlon Brando. Um, And uh, he, ironically, was sometimes given columns to write for The Sun. He was so popular. And they turned on him in a way that had a huge impact on his ability to be confident, which you need as a public figure. Um, And that, of course, had the famous consequence of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown becoming obsessed with the media, rightly, of trying to make sure that whatever else happened, they at least neutered some of the onslaughts that Kinnock had received, Uh, Tony Blair famously went to Rupert Murdoch's uh, big conference uh, in Australia. Uh, uh, You know, I I went actually as a reporter, BBC political correspondent with him. I think it was in 1995. And uh, he he was only there for about 48 hours. He was right to do it. He was hugely criticised for doing it. But these papers have an impact. 
And one of the factors, one of many factors in the landslide Labour won in 97 was the newspapers were on the whole with them and certainly not destroying them. So that too was a big consequence from 1992. Um, The Tory party began to change in an astonishing way from being the party of uh, pragmatic unity most of the time to one striven by ideological division. Uh, The 1992 Conservative Conference should have been a great election victory rally, really. You know, the fourth win against expectations. It reminded me that conference in 1992, just after Britain had fallen out the exchange rate mechanism, of Labour's famous Civil War-style conferences in the late 70s and early 80s, over Europe mainly and uh, Major being attacked by people uh, in the conference hall, uh, fringe meetings of passionate anger about Maastricht mainly, but other things too. And the Conservative Party was changing in front of our eyes. This was after a 1992 uh, manifesto, or certainly the 1990-1992 period, where there had been at the very least a tonal change, uh, greater focus on public services, tonally more at ease with Britain's membership of the European Union. John Major famously said he wanted Britain to be at the heart of Europe and so on. But after 1992, that party changed in a way that began the path to Brexit. There was one other very important consequence. The leader of the Liberal Democrats, Paddy Ashdown, after that 92 defeat, decided that his party's position between the two parties, the two bigger parties of equidistance, as it was called, had to change. Um, that the split in the non-Tory vote was almost turning Britain into a one-party state. So quite soon after 1992, he began his journey towards an informal relationship with Labour. Um, He made a speech posing questions about the role of this third party um, in the uh, within a couple of months of the general election. He did it very tentatively because it was a sort of purist thing that the Lib Dems should not be seen closer to one of the two other bigger parties. Uh, and of course, famously, once Blair took over in 1994, um, they formed a close relationship. Blair saw more of Paddy Ashdown than he did some of his own shadow cabinet. Um, And that informal relationship was one of the factors that helped both parties. Uh, It it was one of the reasons behind the landslide, and it was one of the reasons why the Lib Dems won many seats in 1997. Uh, And Ashdown played it very cleverly. The Lib Dems could have been swallowed up by New Labour and Blair and destroyed. But by joining in a dance, certainly up to 97, Uh, and planned really from the 1992 election onwards, uh, Ashdown made his party more relevant, not less relevant. Uh, It's not always the case that if the Lib Dems do well, Labour does badly. 
and 97 was an example of that. So what a strange election. And it is a warning to all of us, from leaders downwards, to be pretty cautious about opinion polls and focus groups and all the rest of it. Um, Because uh, certainly after 92, the BBC conducted the most massive post-mortem about how they got that exit poll wrong. And uh, to credit that great genius John Curtis, the election guru the BBC now has, uh, he has managed to get these things right in in an astonishing way in some very complicated elections. Um, But they got it wrong then. And similarly with opinion polls. And I remember the then Director General of the BBC saying, the BBC cannot lead on an opinion poll and treat it as a news story in itself anymore. They're not reliable enough. Um, So, yeah, and for sure, Neil Kinnock will look at all opinion polls in the future with a degree of wariness. I've spoken a lot to Neil Kinnock about that time. He says that he felt throughout that 92 election he was going to lose. Um, He wasn't that confident, although he must have had hopes, at least of leading in a hung parliament as prime minister. Uh, He said that the way people looked at him, uh, he could tell they were turning away. And of course, he took it very personally. He once said to me, I think it was about me, partly, that we lost. And maybe it was, but it was about the way he had been portrayed. But there is, I think, another lesson. Uh, There are many for Keir Starmer in what happened to Labour in 1992. If you go for that sort of cautious incrementalism, you can still be trapped by tax and spend bombshell allegations, but you don't have a way of explaining convincingly that you have a big idea to change the country. Um, You also uh, need to be very careful of taking on your party too much because all people out there notice who don't follow politics on an hourly basis is a disturbed party. And Neil Kinnock has said recently that he and his team often met after some victory over policy or some victory over the left and have a drink. And Neil Kinnock would sit up and say, look, we might be celebrating that we won this one, but all voters will notice is that we're split. He had an astute understanding of politics and he was right. And so if Keir Starmer thinks that all people will notice that he is a strong leader and not Jeremy Corbyn, uh, if he briefs against or allows his allies to brief against to say we're going to kill a section of the party, we're going to do this, all voters see is a split party. Some will be impressed that a party has changed, but a lot will just see splits, divisions, all slightly weird. Many, many lessons from 1992, and they are a few of them. It was, as I say, an election fought on cold, early spring days, and the immediate aftermath felt oddly cold and dark on both sides, curiously. And then we all know what followed. Thank you for listening.
So there we are, my reflections on the 1992 election, which is featuring heavily in August analysis of the pressures on Starmer as he sees it and his team see it. Uh, the fear of the next election being closer to 92. Fear, fear, fear. Emotions that um, can be quite stifling in British politics. So there we are. And those of you who kindly subscribe to Patreon will get the whole lot. There's the uh, 1983 election in there, the February 1974 election. There's a foggy, dark, cinematic election. And indeed, I kind of feel the mood now in some respects, is kind of like the mid-70s uh, and early 70s. But um, I wouldn't dream from that to suggest it's going to be the outcome of the February 74 election. But anyway, they're all in there. And if you subscribe, uh, well, I'm now in Edinburgh. And next week, I'll give you an update on the shows, the predictions from the audience, the mood of the audience as we try to make sense of it all with a different show each day. Uh, I'll be halfway through when I record the podcast next week, so I'll give you an update on the mood here in Edinburgh as we delve deep on a daily basis. Do try and come along. Let's say if you subscribe to Patreon, you'll get um, one of the shows as a bonus podcast for August. And yeah, well, let's get together. And thank you again for your emails. Do email about 92. I'm reading them all. I'm just not reading so many out while we're focusing on our summer specials and just having a bit of a break from uh, some of the themes that are going to overwhelm us when everyone gets back from their holidays. So yeah, I'm going to take a deep breath, get ready for the next show here in Edinburgh. Hope to see many of you at them. You can get tickets on the blurb with this podcast or at the um, Edinburgh Fringe website. It's 11 o'clock every morning, so you can bring in a cup of coffee and we can have a good time. And anyway, all of you, let's get together again next week to make sense of it all. I'll pluck another bonus from the vault and reflect on whatever theme it is that um, I pluck out and, as I say, give you an update on the mood here in Edinburgh. Okay, everyone, have a great time. See you soon. Bye. <laughs>